In the mid-20th century, all it took to sell a product was a good jingle. Bounce up and down just like a clown. Everyone knows it's Lincoln. Alka-Seltzer, plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. These days, consumers are looking for more than a catchy tune. And they're more skeptical about who exactly businesses claim to be. We saw BP uh, proclaiming itself as one of the most environmentally focused companies on Earth. And then the Gulf of Mexico got polluted by a colossal oil spill based on their inattention. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, the challenges of marketing in 2018. Later in the show, new marketing strategies also bring opportunity. It's easier than ever for businesses to reach niche markets, and sometimes that really pays off. If you think about Google and Apple right now with their voice recognition software and you know their competition about who's going to be the in-home assistant, that voice recognition software started for people with learning difficulties like dyslexia or people who are blind. But first, marketing schools are at the forefront of these changes in the industry. Kelly O'Keefe is head of creative brand management Virginia Commonwealth University's Brand Center and a partner in Brand Federation. He's been keeping a close eye on how marketing trends have shifted. Kelly, how has the political polarization we're experiencing affected big companies and big brands? Well, it's been, it's been an almost terrifying situation in a way because a big company and a big brand wants to be able to market at least uh, to try to market to 100% of America. Um, You want your goal to be able to reach everyone. And for many products and services, you need to reach most of everyone, whether that's laundry detergent or soap or computers. You don't want to just reach out to half. So this political polarization, which used to be something that stayed in the world of politics, has now started to invade the world of commerce, the world of brands. And it's, it's become tricky for corporations. How has it invaded the world of brands? Do you mean they're using political polarization in their campaigns or that they simply must recognize its effect? I don't think they're trying to use it in their campaigns. I, I think they're trying to avoid going into left and right issues. But the trouble is that we're in a world, uh, in a world at a time, when a lot of issues that used to be perceived as right and wrong are now perceived as right and left. What are examples of companies that you have seen in the crossfire, and it's not deliberate? Well, you know, you've seen uh, back and forth of uh, attacks on companies, including companies like Harley-Davidson, who was first uh, celebrated by President Trump, then later vilified by President Trump when they said that they were going to put plants overseas. Um, and so they, they kind of go from this back and forth of being loved by the right, being hated by the right. It's not a place that a brand wants to be. And we've seen, we've seen others over the years that have taken stands that have been politically um, volatile from Chick-fil-A and, and their uh, leadership and ownership supporting anti-gay marriage and marriage equality causes to their detriment to um, even common brands like Google and Facebook 
being under attack from one side or another for views that are perceived to be political. We've seen uh, a storied brand like Nordstrom, one of one of the strongest brands in retailing, under attack because they dropped uh, Ivanka Trump's line of products and services. These these things are unusual to say the least. We've never been in a situation where brands have had to fight politically on a day to day basis. Um, or wonder whether or not any at any given moment an action they take might be misperceived by the president and and they are called to the carpet in front of everyone uh, with a call to boycott their products and services. Are we in a distinctive period that is far removed from what you've called the golden age of advertising and marketing? Yes, I've never seen anything like this time. Um, and it, it's become a minefield, and it's troubling for corporations, and it's troubling for Americans. Um, when we look back to the golden age of marketing, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when, when we first started to see these massive brands emerge, mostly built through, through sheer bulk of advertising, lots of ads running on three television networks, singing songs about plop, plop, fizz, fizz, and you're being in good hands with Allstate and ring around the collar. And we, we had a, an easier time back then. If you bought enough media and you had a clever jingle, people started to buy your product. They didn't know who made it, and they didn't ask questions about what the values of the company were. They just were mesmerized into buying brands. And what changed? What changed was really the consumer and, uh, and our confidence in these brands. What the consumer learned just through trial and error was that the things that they were being told weren't always truthful. And now we come to the present time where our consumers are constantly reminded that brands aren't always telling the truth, whether that's Volkswagen who faked emission standards, that's um, Wells Fargo Bank creating false accounts, that's Lance Armstrong standing on a platform of ethics and then uh, then revealing that he's been lying to us for years. We saw BP uh, proclaiming itself as one of the most environmentally focused companies on earth. And then the Gulf of Mexico got polluted by a colossal oil spill based on their inattention. So the consumer has gotten hardened to the claims of the brands they work with. They know that the things that they say are not necessarily the things that they do. What are examples of companies that actually experienced this and then came around? One of my favorite examples of this is a brand, uh, Dove. A lot of us think, Dove, what a wonderful brand. What have they done for women and women's self-esteem by really trying to support the fact that different women come in different shapes and forms and that no form is better than any other to support how women look in a very honest and natural way and push back very aggressively against the beauty industry that characterizes women only as underwear models. But what started to happen uh, as that campaign started to take hold is people learned that the parent company of Dove was Unilever. And Unilever is the same company that makes ads for brands like X Body Spray. X Body Spray had a whole batch of advertising that was just incredibly sexist. And so this was in conflict with the work they were doing at the very same time for Dove. And fortunately, because we live in an information world where that information was shared, people started to figure out that they were talking out of both sides of their mouth. 
there are really only two options. If they truly believe that women's self-esteem is important, then they have no business running advertising that undermines that from their other brands. And if they don't believe that women's self-esteem is important, if they continue to run that kind of advertising, then what they're really saying is that the advertising for Dove is just a cheap trick to sell soap. And what we started to see is Axe body spray advertising and other advertising from Unilever brands being more respectful of women, breaking away from those stereotypes and breaking away from those kind of attacks on women's self-esteem that sometimes come from the beauty industry. We've seen consumer pressure for our company to behave in a consistent fashion actually work, and we've seen Unilever become a better company as a result of that. Do you think the change is mostly generational? I do think generational uh, attitudes have a lot to do with this change. Some years ago, uh, I was doing an introductory lecture to a new class of students at the VCU Brand Center where I teach. And I found uh, one student who raised their hand and said, I just have to admit that I'm conflicted. I love the work that I do in this school and in this field, but I also feel like part of our job is just to sell people things they don't need or don't want, and in some cases to deceive them with claims that can't be actually fulfilled. And um, I thought that was an incredible question and an appropriate question, especially given the fact that advertising in polls that are taken of ethics in industries perennially ranks at the very bottom of those polls as the least, one of the least ethical. And this is an opportunity to rise up. You know, everything that I've been able to do in my career that has helped organizations, that has helped candidates, that has helped causes to go further, I've been able to do because I have the ability to communicate effectively. And so it's more than likely that your best chance to change the world to the kind of world you'd love to live in is through your talents as opposed to ignoring those talents. Help us make this an ethical industry. And we work really hard on that every day at the Brand Center. It's part of what we teach is that you can make brands more responsible at the same time you make them more powerful. And as a matter of fact, because you have the power to make a brand more successful, you can use that power to encourage the organizations that you work with to become more responsible and more beneficial to the world that they serve. Kelly O'Keefe is head of creative brand management at Virginia Commonwealth University's Brand Center and a partner in Brand Federation. Online shopping makes it easier than ever to find products geared toward people with specific disabilities. But when Jane Machen went looking for a gift for her godson with dyslexia, she came up short. So Machen, a professor of marketing at Radford University, sent her students to fill the gap. Jane, tell me about your godson. You went out to buy him a birthday gift and had a thought about what you wanted for him. Yeah, so um, my godson's a um, wonderful boy called Logan, and he, at the time, had been recently diagnosed with dyslexia. And what was the idea that, that occurred to you when you went to buy him a birthday gift? Well, I wanted 
something that would make him feel good about his dyslexia. I mean, as an adult, we know of famous examples like Steve Jobs, um, like Richard Branson, like Jay Leno. These are famous people with dyslexia and they actually credit their creativity, their accomplishments as entrepreneurs um, to their dyslexia. But these are not really names that a you know five, six-year-old is familiar with. So I wanted him to feel proud of his dyslexia. I wanted him to not think of it as a disability. So I went looking online. I thought, you know, Amazon has everything. Um, it's surely they've got a book or a toy or something that helps him realize how special his dyslexia is and not to see it as something to be embarrassed about. And what did you find? Nothing. <laughs> Zip. The only things they have were all really educational things, you know, how to teach um, to read, how to teach to learn, special paper that's got raised edges, things like this. Um, nothing fun. Um, and I was mad. I was really mad. I'm a marketer. I'm a marketing professor. And um, I thought this is stupid. Um, yes, it's probably, well, it's not even a small population. Like this is the largest learning disability in the United States, probably globally. And it just seemed crazy to me that there wasn't anything that was um, designed to help them grow and feel good and positive about who they were. But you did a neat thing. You actually turned to your marketing class and said, all right, you all design games that might be um, uplifting and fun for a kid with dyslexia. Yes. So I teach creativity at a business school. And so I'm always trying to find a business angle to t teach creativity. Um, I think my students come in sometimes thinking it's going to be an art class and it's not. It's about problem solving. That's what creativity is about. It's about problem solving. But I always like to tie it back to a business angle so they can see the profitability aspect of it and the business side of things. So I tell my students um, about some of the most popular Kickstarter campaigns. Some of the biggest Kickstarter campaigns have been games. And they've made multimillionaires out of the guys that developed them, Cards Against Humanity being one of them. Another one right now is teaching kids how to code, a board game. So I sort of prefaced it with that and said, okay, you're going to be coming up with a board game because you can make millions um, if you succeed in doing this. There weren't that many games that didn't require some kind of counting or reading ability. We have Hungry Hungry Hippos, Candyland, some of those. They're chance games. I wanted a game that wasn't a game of chance, that actually took advantage of the unique processing abilities that he has as a child with dyslexia. People with dyslexia tend to be visual thinkers. They see connections between things, um, so they can see relationships that other people might not be able to notice or see. They tend to look at things from a global or a holistic perspective, so they can see the big picture um, in a way that perhaps other people might not. They're willing to take risks. They failed so many times in their daily reading. You know, so by the time Logan's six, he's constantly been failing and struggling at doing activities that he sees his peers, you know, doing so easily that failing has lost any of its edge. It's not frightening anymore. Well, fear of failure is one of the biggest uh, barriers to creativity. So if you have overcome your fear of failure, you're willing to try new things. You're willing to think outside the box. Um, you're willing to take risks. And it's those risks that lead to um, creative leaps and creative problem solving. So I wanted a game that would capture on some of these things. They tend to be really good storytellers. They're normally very um, verbally articulate. And there is some research that suggests that they are more creative in general. I think the incidence of um, dyslexia in the regular population is about one in 10. The incidence amongst entrepreneurs of dyslexia is more like three in 10. 
So I gave all this information to my students and um, they, as part of the creative problem solving process, um, you have to learn how to empathize with the person that you're trying to problem solve for. So I got a grant from Radford University to purchase um, a simulation called um, Experience Dyslexia. It consists of six stations, they call them, two reading, two writing, and two listening. What a neat thing. It is fantastic. Did they give you cool ideas? Yes. <laughs> so um, this is a problem-solving course. Um, we had one wonderful game called Bull Race. I don't know if you can say Bull Race, but the idea was you could tell whether somebody was lying or not, and you were going to call them on it. So it was trying to take advantage of the social perception that um, children with dyslexia might have. There was one that was called Shapeshifter, where you um, were moving abstract shapes around to make new shapes. And again, using this ability to think differently, to see things as a gestalt, um, to not see the literal image that is in front of you, but be able to take it into different places. One was called Disaster Master um, and helping to make connections between disparate parts of information to solve a bigger problem. So, yes, some fantastic games from it. It was awesome. You're a wonderful godmother. (laughs) Well, and what was fantastic is that um, a couple of the student teams continued to work on their games afterwards. Um, They got some small grants again from Radford University to take them to the next level to buy some basic materials. So one was about seeing your way from one end of a um, situation to another and you had to navigate your way um, through various different roadblocks, but building your way along using Lego blocks. So Um, Again, that 3D dimensional visioning, as well as being able to see all the way to the end, not just, you know, the next immediate step. You've looked into ways that the marketing world hurts people with dyslexia and also can benefit and does benefit people with dyslexia. What have you discovered? What we're interested in is how the marketplace can help consumers cope with the not only the underlying disorder so you know games that might give the dyslexic child a boost and help them have an advantage against their brothers and sisters when they're playing it but also help overcome the stigma it doesn't just have to be though like you're not doing it for the goodness of your heart right i mean at the end of the day these business decisions can help their bottom line can help them make more money If you think about Google and Apple right now with their voice recognition software and, you know, their competition about who's going to be the our in-home assistant, um, that voice recognition software started for people with learning difficulties like dyslexia or people who are blind. Um, So a population that is disabled and a subset of the overall population that is going to be worth millions for whomever comes out as the leader in the area eventually. OXO, there's a famous example of OXO, so the kitchen tools company. They developed these kitchen tools with comfy handles and things for a population of people with physical disabilities that were having trouble holding regular tools. Well, now it's the best-selling line of kitchen tools because everybody wanted this comfort grip. So focusing on these niche populations can actually have huge impacts for smart companies who are willing to um, take the time to learn about the smaller population and see the bigger picture. Jane, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Jane Machen is a professor of marketing at Radford University. In the 
20th century, after segregation, a new world of consumption opened up to African Americans. Melvin Stith says some of the patterns that emerged during the civil rights movement can still be seen today. Melvin Stith is a marketing expert and president of Norfolk State University. Dr. Stith, over your studies of consumption patterns for African Americans over the years, what do you think you have most seen change? I think there are two things that I would consider the major changes. One would be, first, I would just call freedom of movement, and that is freedom to feel that they can go to the marketplace and do whatever people in the majority sector is doing. And that is from booking family reunion on cruises, traveling through the South Stand at hotels, eating in restaurants. Those things, I think, were critically important that emerged after the civil rights movement. The second was freedom of expression. And that is they could dress, consume products and services that they felt was an expression of who they were and maintain who they were as a people and what was important to them. When you were growing up in the 60s, you noticed how family members, aunts and uncles and others, would carefully project certain images through their choices of cars, clothes, drink, and the like. Tell me about that. Yes, I grew up on a, a family farm that was in the family for seven generations, about 400 acres where cotton and peanuts were king and queen. And my grandfather and father worked that farm, and he had brothers and sisters, and they would come home. And I, re- I remember the cars. I remember my aunts coming back with their fantail Cadillacs like they were a mile long. And I was a little farm boy and said, oh, my God. The Buick got to call a deuce and a quarter. It was a huge car. And I just said, oh, when I get up, I want one of those, you know. But the cars and even some of the alcoholic beverages and branded products, African-Americans could express who they were and people could say they were successful. And I always laugh and we laugh about this. Now, I remember this to this day. My aunts would come. I said they used to wear furs in August and they would have these furs to wrap around like a fox fur with the teeth clinging to the tail. I mean, I remember that stuff. But it was a way they could come home and show the people back in their hometown that they were living good lives. And part of that, you think, was projecting an image. It was told about an image and that I'm successful, that I can afford these things because there's no other way to express themselves. They couldn't just hop on a cruise ship. They just couldn't travel to say, I'm going to Miami Beach. I mean, remember during those times, even when the entertainers were there, they couldn't even stay in the hotels that they were entertaining. If you read anything about the Harlem Renaissance and and, and Ella Fitzgerald, Sammy Davis Jr., even when he was with the Rat Pack, he couldn't stay with them. So how do you express yourself? How do you express that you're successful? How do you express that you have arrived, if you want to use that term, or that you're living a good life? You did it through your consumption. What are you seeing nowadays? Do you see a more informal dress style, or do you still see vestiges of this dress to the nines on the part of young African Americans on the campus? I think that you still see dress to the nine, but the concept of dressing to the nine has changed. It is less formal. But it is still the brand that these young folks know when they see their peers and their brands. And they know the logos for those brands that signify that I have a good outfit on. My family can afford me to be in this outfit. So I worked at a majority institution and minority institution, serving institutions. And the dress was always much more brand-oriented on the uh, African-American campuses. But here's the beautiful thing about it. It's a choice now. It is not an obligation when my son was growing up, he would never wear anything with a logo on it. Well, he could make that choice then and feel accepted. And I think that's the beautiful change that has occurred over time. And, and to me, that is, is, is the most significant thing that has happened. For the study that you did on influencers, 
on consumer choices for African Americans, what would you say nowadays are key influencers that you're seeing on consumption powers on young people? The key influencers is, is when they look in the mirror and say, who am I? What image do I want to project? That is who I am going to be. Everything in my life, in my lifestyle, in my expression of who I am will reflect who I want to be now. Look at TV now. You see so many interracial couples in these commercials. You never saw that 10 years ago. And it's across the spectrum. You see same-sex couples in national ads, okay? You see a Nike now can do something that they think is in their best image with Colin Kaepernick. And they feel free to do that, okay? And it doesn't hurt their image. In fact, in many ways, it has increased and enhanced their image among uh, many of their users. And for instance, my wife, we were shopping two weeks ago, and she wanted some sneaks, and we were at the mall, and she said, well, I just have to buy Nikes. I said, why do you have to buy Nikes? I said, I might like a different brand. She said, no, because of what they have stood for recently. We were with our new grandson this week, and she told everybody, look at my sneaks. I have the swoop on my sneak because of what Nike stood for. And I said, oh, I didn't know you cared that much about football. She said, it's not about football. It's about the expression of who they are and what they think is right, allowing people to be who they are. You've been on so many boards of major companies. I'm curious whether you, in the times that you have served on these boards, have seen a change in the willingness of the boards to become more diverse. Yes, but you know what? It didn't happen from within, I don't think, because traditionally boards where people tend to hire their friends, but you start getting other organizations and consumers rise up and said, I want my board to be like me. Let me give an example. A friend of mine, worked for a huge accounting firm, and they had the uh, account, uh, maybe for Revlon or one of the women's products, and he said when they sent that auditing team to Revlon, the CEO said, wait a minute, you have all men on this team. These are products designed for women. What is this? They lost the account because they didn't have that diverse team who could understand women, you know, and using cosmetic kinds of products. They sent all white guys to this company. They lost the account. He said it flipped everything for them. Every team that they went out, they made sure the diversity and the same thing with boards. In Europe now, you know, it's required to have females. And what, by 2020, California just passed a law that every public corporation in California has to have at least one female on their board of directors. Huge changes, and they impact the marketplace. Final thought. What are you noticing about this generation of college students, the ones that have arrived on your campus First year through fourth year, maybe that is different from what you've seen in the past. Yeah, well, remember that I'm a, I'm a product of the 60s, and we marched for everything, right? You know, we loved marching, so <laughs> we were marching to in- I was at Norfolk State as a student. We marched to integrate the Y downtown. My wife actually led the group from Norfolk to go to the March on Washington. So again, I've always said a lot that I didn't think the students were actively engaged enough and it were somewhat complacent. But I'm beginning to see a slow change in that. I think students, especially at Norfolk State, they come to my office. They're, they're not afraid to express their opinion with me. Or when I meet with them in groups, we talk about those issues and they tell me how they're feeling. And I want them to have that audience. So I think students are becoming much more socially engaged, socially active. You know, we talk about a lot of stuff now that I never knew about gluten-free products, right? The organics, of course, is, is taking over every store that you go into now. And these are changing. I think that's been demanded from the marketplace. We now know that natural products in this next generation is going to demand that and, and, and the marketplace will respond to that.
Melvin Stith is the president of Norfolk State University and formerly professor of marketing at Norfolk State University's Martin J. Whitman School of Management. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is With Good Reason. Since its debut in 1966, the science fiction series Star Trek has introduced fans to hundreds of imagined worlds, each with different compositions and life forms. There was even a planet that resembled 20s-era Chicago, with gangsters who carried Tommy guns. Well, since this oxmith asked us down here, don't you think we should see him? All right. Get moving. Down the street. We haven't yet found planets that look like our own, but scientists are identifying thousands of new planets, including one that spews diamonds the size of your fist, and another one where it snows crystalline rock. According to NASA, there are 3,545 confirmed exoplanets. These are the planets beyond our solar system. Michael Summers is a planetary scientist and professor of physics and astronomy at George Mason University. He's the author of a new book called Exoplanets, Diamond World, Super-Earths, Pulsar Planets, and the New Search for Life Beyond Our Solar System. Since 1989, Summers has served on the mission teams of several NASA space probes, and he says he's continually surprised by the discoveries that are being made. Mike, you and I were taught that there are nine planets, period, and yet... In your long career, and especially recently, you're finding planets around every corner. Well, it's almost entirely recently. Um, we discovered the first planet beyond our solar system in 1991. And then we found a couple more, 1994, 1995. And then I think it was really 2007 when the, the field of exoplanet science really kicked in. The Kepler Space Telescope. Uh, has been very successful at finding planets around other stars. And now we are discovering new planets at the rate of about two or three per day. And that rate is increasing. So, so just think about that. Every day, I have to look at the exoplanet encyclopedia when I go into work to see what planets do we know about today. And it's not just the numbers of planets. It's whole new categories. Uh, I grew up that there were nine planets, and then we categorized those into just two types, you know, rocky planets like the Earth, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, and then the giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Well, that really wasn't representative of what we're finding. You have one in your new book you call Diamond Planets. Diamond Planet, di yeah. What's that? Well, we're finding that planets come in very bizarre compositions, things that we didn't expect. And there are a couple of planets that appear to be made out of, if not pure, almost pure carbon. And so uh, a planet, you know, is going to be a lot of mass um, under a lot of pressure. And so at high pressure, we know what elemental carbon is, and that's crystalline diamond. But this is one of the most bizarre planets you could imagine. Not only is it made out of diamond, uh, where you have a mantle maybe 10,000 kilometers thick of crystalline diamond, the core of it is under such high pressure, 100 million times the surface pressure on the Earth, that the diamond flows as a liquid. Huh. At that kind of pressure, liquid diamond would force itself up through 
fissures and cracks in the crust and explode out on the surface a lot like magma does on the Earth. And we don't get volcanoes that way. Well, on 55 Cancri E, we would get volcanoes, but it would be liquid diamonds spurting up into the sky, crystallizing as it cools, falling back onto a very black, velvety surface. And the diamonds would probably about, be about the size of your fist uh, as they crystallize and cool. So it's a very crazy place. Then you have described planets that are all water. Yeah, and I'm not talking about covered with water. I'm talking about water through and through, from the surface all the way in, maybe 80 or 90 percent to the core. The, the core is probably made out of nickel and iron and rocks and stuff. But you're talking about a water ocean, maybe 10 to 15,000 kilometers thick. There's also a category that you're finding that you've dubbed rogue planets. What are those? Right, rogue planets. Uh, me, I find these the most intriguing of all. For one reason, there may be more of these than any other kind of planet that's out there. And they're probably more bizarre, more different than anything uh, in our solar system than we can imagine. And so these are planets that don't orbit stars. They have been ejected into the interstellar medium and wander out between the stars. We haven't found very many of these, just a handful of them, but they're hard to detect. The fact that we've found any of them means that there are probably lots of them out there. In fact, there could be thousands of times more of these than those bound to stars. Um, we find planets that orbit two stars. We find planets that orbit three stars. We find planets that orbit four stars. And we don't even know how you dynamically do that. How can that be stable for long periods of time? Yet there it is. I mean, we find planets that are so close to the central star, the side that's facing the star, is a magma ocean. The magma evaporates into the, the, the area above the planet and forms an atmosphere of vaporized rock. It flows around to the night side supersonically, and it cools rapidly down to temperatures below the freezing point of water. As it does so, it freezes out in the atmosphere as rock snowflakes that fall onto the surface <laughs> of the planet. You're making this up. So, no, I'm not making it up. They will be crystalline rocks, tiny little crystalline rocks that fall out of the atmosphere onto the surface. That's the kind of thing that we're finding. So what is our field of exploration? We're just looking <laughs> within our own galaxy. But our galaxy is pretty big. There are about 400 billion uh, stars in our galaxy. That's about 10 times the number of people that have lived on Earth in Earth history. For each of those stars, there are probably 10 planets. So you go outside at night, you look in the sky, and just think about that. When you look in the sky and you see a star, on average, there are about 10 planets around it. Probably two or three are Earth-like, and there are probably one or two that would even be habitable for simple life. So that means that there are 10 times 400 billion planets in our galaxy, more habitable planets than the number of people that have ever lived on Earth. And then if you extrapolate that to all the galaxies in the visible universe, that means that there are more habitable planets, not planets, but habitable planets than the combined number of heartbeats of all the people that have ever lived on Earth. So of course everybody asks you, what do you think is the possibility of A, life, right. and B, intelligent life, life equal or surpassing ours? Well, we're finding that 
life on Earth is incredibly hardy. Uh, we find life deep underground. Uh, we find life at the base of glaciers. We find life that lives in uh, acid pools around volcanic vents. We find life at the top of the tallest mountain, life that can live in the, the coolants around nuclear reactors. So life is incredibly hardy. We call this type of life extremophiles. This type of life could live in the clouds of Venus, underground on Mars, inside three of the moons of Jupiter, inside three of the moons of Saturn, probably inside one of the moons of Neptune, and inside of Pluto. So simple life can live in many, many places. There are habitable planets for simple life all over the place. So if the process that led to life originating on the Earth is in any way common to, to planetary systems, there should be simple life all over the place. Now, to go from simple life to complex life, a lot happened. In Earth history, we had simple life present about three and a half billion years ago. But it was only half a billion years ago that we got complex life forms and the body plans that we're familiar with today. And then it's only in the past you know, a few million years that we've had uh, hominids, you know, humans, and then more recently homo sapiens. That path is, is uncertain because we've only, we've only got information on one way to get from simple life to complex intelligent life. Are there other ways? I would guess almost certainly, given the complexity of the universe around us. Are there ways of getting intelligent life that's different than ours? Almost certainly. I think once you get any kind of life on a planet, evolution is going to drive that to more complex, to more hardy, more adaptable organisms. I mean, they couldn't survive otherwise. And intelligence has survival virtue. So eventually you will get intelligent life if you get simple life. Now I'm oversimplifying, and there are many unknowns, and the truth is we've not discovered it yet. So it could very well be true that we are the only living thing in the universe. I would find that more astonishing than a universe that's filled with intelligent life. You're not just speculating. You are actually systematically looking for this and studying it. Right. And we will be looking for signatures of life on planets around other stars. And, and that's not easy to do. Uh, we have to be quite honest here. Looking for signatures of life on a planet light years away is just plain difficult. Life could be much more common in these ocean worlds than on the surfaces of planets. Maybe life rarely evolves on the surface of a planet because it's too hostile. You know, it's exposed to ultraviolet radiation from a star, asteroid impacts. Maybe subsurface oceans are really where intelligent life develops and evolves. How would you detect intelligent life inside of an ocean world around a distant star? We don't know. Now, if they're intelligent enough to send signals out into space or to send signals between you know, themselves and we detect some of the leakage of that, that would be a different thing. That would be intelligent signatures. But looking at just the residues or the byproducts of life, of organic life, may just be one of the ways of doing it. There may be much better ways of doing it. We just haven't discovered them yet.
If we can't see these planets, we're not seeing them with our telescopes. We're inferring them, right? Well, most of them, yes. So, okay, so we, the diamond, the liquid diamond, and the right, rogue planets, and the all-water right. planets, and the, the giant oceans thousands of kilometers deep, how do we know? Well, uh, we know because of the laws of physics, and we know gravity pretty well. And so when a planet moves around a star, it tugs at the star. And so when we see tugs like that around distant stars, you can infer things about the planet. So we have some planets that are incredibly high density that are going to be metal, and some planets that are low density that could be hydrogen, a gas. And in intermediate are, are planets like the water planets and the diamond planets. But by measuring the density, that gives us a good handle on the internal composition. What do you want to see happen now? You, you want to see space travel improved? Or do you just want farther and farther probes? Humanity is going to go into space, okay? That's the future home of humanity, at least if we're going to survive for any long periods of time. And part of the reason is that the Earth is just too exposed. It's a dangerous place to be for thousands and thousands of years. You know, asteroid impacts, huge volcanic eruptions, plagues could easily wipe out civilization if we have all of our sort of eggs in one basket, as they say. And so spreading humanity out among different planets would make humanity more survivable in the long term. The last time I paid close attention, it seemed like we had come to the end of great NASA space exploration, and we were all wringing mm. our hands over what the next great project would be. But you sound as though mm. we are thriving. We're on the verge of having a major human presence in exploration again. It, it depends a large part on um, robotics and artificial intelligence. If we were able to build... AI systems that can be simple, that we can launch, say, to an asteroid, but yet complex enough that they can mine the asteroid for us, set it up so that when humans arrive, it's a turnkey operation. You just open the door and walk in. Now, that's it sounds like science fiction, but I think that that will probably be the next level of a serious advancement of human presence in space for artificial intelligence, for robots, Build the settlements before we get there, or at least pieces of them, so that by the time we get there, we don't have to worry about that aspect of it. We can go ahead and start exploring or doing the next stage of exploration. Well, Mike Summers, this is fascinating. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. My pleasure. Thank you. Michael Summers is a planetary scientist and professor of physics and astronomy at George Mason University. He's the co-author of Exoplanets, Diamond World, Super Earths, Pulsar Planets, and the new search for life beyond our solar system. Coming up next, when the worlds of science and theater collide. Chaos theory is a branch of mathematics that has applications in disciplines like meteorology, physics, and engineering. But what about when chaos theory is brought to the stage? Denise Gilman is an associate professor of directing and dramatic literature at Christopher Newport University. She says a play about chaos theory introduced her to the world of science plays. Yeah, the play that 
began this whole journey for me is a play called Arcadia by Tom Stoppard. As a young person, I really struggled with science and mathematics. But when I read this play when I was a graduate student, somehow through Tom Stoppard's goal to illuminate the ideas of chaos theory, I was able to understand it. It happens in two different time periods, around 1812 in England and then the mid-90s. Tom Stoppard actually based the character of Thomasina on Ada Lovelace, who was a brilliant mathematician. And she also is considered the first programmer. She's 13 years old, and she's absolutely brilliant. And she actually discovers that this famous equation cannot be solved. When I read the play and I began to visualize this idea that there are, there are forces that are working uh, that are above and beyond, you know, our everyday understanding of our existence. It just, it elevated my thinking and I could visualize it because I could see the characters from the earlier time period and the latter time period, their actions were beginning to intermingle, even though they were centuries apart. And it helped me to understand that an action that takes place centuries before can have an impact, a great impact, on a future time period. I had never thought about there being so-called science plays. Can you tell me some of the plays you found? Yeah, there's some classical science plays like Dr. Faust, and then there's also Galileo by Bertolt Brecht. Also, Inherit the Wind is considered a science play. But it's really only been in the past 30 years that playwrights are really turning to the the stories that science has to tell. So we have a playwrights like Tom Stoppard. We have playwrights like Michael Freyan with Copenhagen, which explores the uncertainty principle around the historical meeting between the famous physicists Werner Heisenberg and Niels Bohr at the beginning of the Second World War in 1941 in Copenhagen. Uh, but it also explores the uncertainty within people's actions. And then there's other plays. For example, a play that I'm working on right now is Photograph 51 by Anna Ziegler. It's a play that explores the race to discover the structure of DNA in the early 1950s. The two teams that were trying to uncover the secret of life. There was one team at King's College in London, headed up by Morris Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin. And the other team was at Cambridge, which was Francis Crick and James Watson. And in the early 50s, they were all racing to discover the DNA structure. And Rosalind Franklin took a famous photograph called Photo 51. And this photograph revealed that DNA was a double helix structure. And her colleague, Morris Wilkins, shared this photograph with James Watson and Francis Crick, and they took the information along with some other reports, and they basically created the famous model that basically proclaimed to the world that they had discovered the double helix structure of DNA and went on to win the Nobel Prize in 1962. And that's the story most of us know, not the behind-the-scenes story. Absolutely. And once again, we're really beginning to uncover women's contributions to science, whether that's women like Rosalind Franklin 
or Katherine Johnson from Hidden Figures or Ada Lovelace in a new play that's coming out by Lauren Gunderson called Ada and the Machine, where we learn about Ada Lovelace and her work with Charles Babbage and the beginnings of a mechanical machine that would eventually become the computer. There's several plays written by woman named Emily du Châtelet. She was a mathematician, a philosopher, and physicist, and she was also the long-term lover of Voltaire. And she and Voltaire engaged in work to try to, in many respects, illuminate the ideas of Sir Isaac Newton. But in her work, uh, she also began to champion the ideas of Gottfried Leibniz, who was a German mathematician and scientist. And several plays have been written about her, one called Emily Le Marquis de Châtelet Defends Her Life Tonight by Lauren Gunderson. Also another play called A Legacy of Light, which also explores her life primarily in the last nine months that she was alive. Tell me about the play that you're directing this spring, Constellations. Ah, yes, beautiful play about love, the multiverse, and string theory, where we watch over the course of time, these two characters, they meet, have a first date, they fall in love, get married, there is a betrayal, and then eventually, as we move toward the end of their story, we learn that Marianne, the female character, has got cancer. And so we watch them struggle through her cancer and her demise. All of these milestones are told in six different variations. So we watch six different possibilities of how they met. So in one of those possibilities, she meets him and he is there with his wife. In another possibility, she meets him and she's there with her boyfriend. Once again, trying to illuminate the idea of the multiverse, that there are multiple ways or multiple realities within our life. And any turn of a phrase a funny look or small adjustment could absolutely change the course of our lives and the way we go. And the play illustrates that beautifully. Do you think these science plays that you are facilitating are leading to new conversations between science and the humanities? Oh, absolutely. We have some really serious problems and challenges as a society. And I believe the only way we're going to solve those problems, if we have these kind of interdisciplinary communities between the sciences, the humanities, and the arts. And I think people are really hungry for that conversation. Well, Denise, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for the work you do. Denise Gilman is an associate professor of directing and dramatic literature at Christopher Newport University. She's also the creator of a new online catalog of science plays. You can find the link to her catalog on our website. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. 
With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to Todd Washburn of WHRV in Norfolk. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.